Hello and welcome to the Thoughtful Language Learner podcast. My name is Makoto, and I'm the author of the book The Thoughtful Language Learner. Are you a struggling language learner? Do you feel like you lack the confidence and skills to learn a foreign language? I believe that cultivating self-awareness and understanding who you are as a learner is the key to success. And through this podcast, I'm bringing you the contents of my book. Each episode will cover a new chapter, sort of like an audiobook. And what's cool is I'm bringing you each chapter through some text-to-speech technology. I hope you like it. Part 3, Learning Rhythms. Expert performance has been the topic of fascination for the psychologist K. Anders Ericsson for decades. He, along with other colleagues, has studied athletes, musicians, and other top performers to try to understand what factors set them apart. In one particular study, Ericsson, along with a colleague Robert Poole, looked at the lives of violin students. They followed 30 violin students at the Berlin University of the Arts in an attempt to distinguish expert performers from amateur performers. At the beginning of the school year, they asked the school professors to subjectively label the students into three groups, best, better, and good. Our goal was to understand what separated the truly outstanding student violinists from those who were merely good. The traditional view held that differences among individuals performing at these highest levels would be due primarily to innate talent. Over time, they discovered that most students spend the same amount of time each week with the music teacher, an hour, the primary difference in practice from one student to the next lies in how much time students devote to solitary practice. They concluded their study by saying to become an excellent violinist requires several thousand hours of practice. We found no shortcuts and no prodigies who reached an expert level with relatively little practice. Like any other skill, it was no surprise to find that the students that had put in more overall hours of practice were better than those who had put in fewer hours of practice. It was not a matter of being born with exceptional talent. But the researchers also uncovered something quite interesting. That the best and the better students averaged five hours more of sleep per week than the good students, mostly taking more time for afternoon naps. When the best students practiced, their training was often so intense and tiring that it led to regular afternoon naps. Erickson and Poole summarize by saying that top performers do two things, the first is general physical maintenance, getting enough sleep and keeping healthy, the violin students were all careful to get a good night's sleep each night, and many of them would take an early afternoon nap after their morning practice session. The second thing is to limit the length of your practice sessions to about an hour. You can't maintain intense concentration for much longer than that. It's clear from Ericsson and other researchers that top performers are not only concerned about the quantity of their practice but also the quality of their practice. They are also concerned about the rest that they get. Top performers are keenly aware of how to optimize their body and practice for maximum focus and concentration. In this section, we will look at how rest and sleep affect your daily rhythms. We will also look at the concept of flow as it relates to our focus. Assessment Tool There are a few different assessment tools that you can use to see your preferred rhythms and sleep patterns. You might already have an idea of whether you are an early bird or a night owl. 
But using assessment tools can help you discover your ideal times for doing important work and play. Using assessment tools can also help you reflect on your current study context and see how conducive it is for focus and concentration. Get this questionnaire and many more by going to the URL, rebrand.ly, forward slash free PDF. Chapter 10, How Good Rest Leads to Good Learning. During the spring of 2015 I had just reached a milestone in my Mandarin Chinese learning. I had just received my results for the Hanyu Shuiping Kaosha, HSK, a Chinese proficiency exam. I had passed level 5 of the exam, which is somewhere between intermediate and advanced proficiency. Although it was not my final goal, I felt that taking a break from studying Chinese was long overdue. At the same time, my family had been adjusting to new changes. We had left China and had returned to the US for a nine-month period for the addition of a new baby boy to our family. While my wife was busy working, I was busy at home with our four-year-old daughter and our baby boy. I was feeling burnt out from studying Chinese, so I started looking for a change. Having the flexibility of being a stay-at-home dad, I thought it was the perfect time to start learning a new language. I picked Uyghur, a minority language spoken in Western China. I didn't have any teacher, but I bought a textbook that could start teaching me the Uyghur alphabet and basic Uyghur grammar. At six months old, our son's sleep patterns were still not consistent. He would have decent naps during the day, but he struggled to fall asleep at night. I often sat next to his crib at night time to soothe him and help him fall asleep. Typically, I'm a morning person who likes to get deep work done first thing in the morning. But since our son was getting up at 5 o'clock every morning, I had to find another time slot to study. I found that once my son fell asleep, I could get a window of time between 9 and 10 o'clock at night to study. Every night, after waiting for my son to fall asleep, I turned on a small nightlight to study Uyghur. I slowly worked my way through the alphabet and learned how to read simple words. Yet it was often very difficult to focus and make progress. After two and a half months of trying to learn Uyghur, I conceded defeat and abandoned the project. I felt like I was just spinning my wheels. During this time, after learning the Uyghur alphabet, I had only managed to finish four lessons in the textbook before getting completely overwhelmed by grammar conjugations. Even after two and a half months, I was still struggling to read the alphabet well. It was a total failure. Looking back at this experience, I now wonder if my failure was really because the language was too hard for me, or because I was relying on terrible learning rhythms. As an introvert and visual learner, I didn't mind studying alone with a textbook. I enjoyed learning the alphabet and vocabulary words. I had high motivation and low anxiety for learning. It seemed like many things were aligned in my favor. Yet I felt like I was making zero progress and failing to actually learn anything. It didn't help that during this time I was constantly sleep deprived. I often had difficulty maintaining my concentration. Sometimes my son would wake up crying and I would go to pat him and soothe him. I constantly felt like I was juggling my attention and fighting for my concentration. When it comes to language learning, we often focus on the question of how, as in resources, strategies and curriculum. But we often fail to ask the question of when. 
When you study, the rhythm of your study habits are just as important as what you study and how you study. Understanding your assessment. We all have an internal clock that tells us what time to wake up and what time to go to sleep. Some people are early birds and some people are night owls. There is an optimal time for us to do our deep and difficult work. Scientists call these individual preferences a person's chronotype. One medical manual describes that chronotype reflects preferred sleep timing as well as the optimum distribution of daytime physical and mental performance. This means that not all time is created equal. There are parts of the day that you are more alert and able to focus on mentally demanding tasks. There are other parts of the day that may be better suited for more creative tasks. One way to think about this is to see our days in separate phases. In his book When, Daniel Pink explains that all of us experience the day in three stages, a peak, a trough, and a rebound. And about three quarters of us, experience it in that order. But about one in four people, those whose genes or age make them night owls, experience the day in something closer to the reverse order, recovery, trough, peak. Pink continues and explains how our cognitive abilities do not remain static over the course of a day. During the 16 or so hours we are awake, they change, often in a regular foreseeable manner. We are smarter, faster, dimmer, slower, more creative, and less creative in some parts of the day than others. The difference in our physical and cognitive abilities depending on the time of day can be quite stark. For example, the performance change between the daily high point and the daily low point can be equivalent to the effect on performance of drinking the legal limit of alcohol. Researchers have found that tasks with significant short-term memory components, such as verbal reasoning and mental arithmetic, typically show better performance in the morning than later in the day, with the best performance around mid-morning. In short, tasks with minimal short-term memory demands show peak performance late in the day and tasks with heavy short-term memory demands are performed best early in the day. This has big implications for language learning. So often we focus on the question of how to study or what to study, but we almost never ask the question of when to study. Most of us lead busy lives and we just try to fit our practice wherever we can find free time. But according to the science, it makes more sense to put the most cognitively demanding tasks during our peak hours instead of other times of the day. Sleep is another important aspect of cognition and performance. Getting a good night's sleep ensures that our brains are able to function at its best the following day. In addition to recovery, research has also shown the role sleep plays in the forming our long-term memory. It could be that we need to give more attention to our sleep and rest in order to prepare our minds for language learning. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, in America, one in three people are not getting enough sleep. 35% of U.S. adults are not getting the recommended seven hours of sleep each night. In her book The Sleep Revolution, Ariana Huffington warns that the delusion persists that we can do our jobs just as well on four or five or six hours of sleep as we can on seven or eight. It's a delusion that affects not only our personal health but our productivity and decision-making. Forfeiting our sleep not only affects our mental performance, but it also affects memory. Although there is still much to be discovered in the field of brain science, there is a growing body of research that connects the role of sleep with memory. 
Our sleep is divided into different stages of rapid eye movement, REM, and non-rapid eye movement, NREM, sleep. Researchers believe that REM sleep and non-REM sleep both play important roles in our brain function and memory. Sleep expert Matthew Walker explains a key function of deep non-REM sleep, which predominates early in the night, is to do the work of weeding out and removing unnecessary neural connections. In contrast, the dreaming state of REM sleep, which prevails later in the night, plays a role in strengthening those connections. This has big implications for learning. If you sleep too late at night, you may be compromising a big chunk of your non-REM sleep. If you wake up too early without getting sufficient sleep, you may be compromising a big chunk of your REM sleep. Advanced technology allows us to peer deeper into the inner workings of our brain. Walker conducted a sleep study among participants who were asked to learn a list of facts before bed. The following morning, they were given a memory test. Using MRI scan, we have since looked deep into the brains of participants to see where those memories are being retrieved from before sleep relative to after sleep, before having slept, participants were fetching memories from the short-term storage site of the hippocampus, the temporary warehouse, which is a vulnerable place to live for any long duration of time if you are a new memory. But things looked very different by the next morning. The memories had moved. After the full night of sleep, Participants were now retrieving that same information from the neocortex, which sits at the top of the brain, a region that serves as the long-term storage site for fact-based memories, where they can now live safely, perhaps in perpetuity. If sleep is a crucial part of memory formation and consolidation, we need to be just as concerned about the quality of our sleep as we are about the quality of our learning. In his book Rest, Alex Pang describes how people don't just become world-class performers through deliberate practice. They also practice what you could call deliberate rest. They find rest that is psychologically and physically restorative, but also mentally productive. Deliberate rest helps you recover from the stresses and exhaustion of the day, allows new experiences and lessons to settle in your memory, and gives your subconscious mind space to keep working. What the research shows. Research in the area of chronotype, CT, that specifically looks at language learning is still very new. But one study compared the results of a language aptitude test between early birds, or larks, and night owls at a university. This language aptitude test measured these university students on different abilities such as vocabulary learning, sound recognition, sound symbol correspondence, and grammar inference. Half of the larks and owls were asked to take this aptitude test in the morning, and half of the larks and owls were asked to take the test in the evening. As expected, the students performed better during their preferred chronotype. The researcher concluded that a significant CT by time of testing interaction was found for two out of four parts, for sound symbol correspondence and grammatical inferencing participants scored significantly better on their preferred time of day, the morning for larks and the early evening for owls. The implication from this study is that the time of day you choose to study does make a difference. Especially for things like trying to study a writing system of a language or trying to develop your grammar knowledge. The role of REM sleep and non-REM sleep is also a new area of research when it comes to language learning. For example, one study took a group of volunteers and had them learn a list of made-up words. Soon after, 
the group of volunteers was split into two groups. One group was given the chance to take a nap, while the other group was asked to rest quietly in another room. After 90 minutes, both groups were tested on the made-up words. The volunteers were then asked to come back the next day to be tested again on the made-up words. The results showed that those who took a nap had better recall. The study concluded, we were able to demonstrate that daytime nap has a positive, consolidating effect on language, i.e., vocabulary or pseudo-word name, learning, possibly due to slow-wave sleep and or M-sleep phases that are absent during mere rest. It's clear from various studies just how important it is to pay attention to your chronotype as well as adequate rest for your brain. Good sleep is critical before and after engaging in cognitively demanding tasks. Applying your learning rhythm. How much sleep are you getting on a regular basis? If you are having difficulty with your concentration or your memory, it could be caused by a lack of sleep. At the end of each day, are you giving yourself sufficient rest for your brain to sort and consolidate everything you learned? As one neuroscientist commented, it is a paradox. We think of sleep as an inefficient use of time, and in fact it is the most efficient use of time in terms of learning and memory. What did the chronotype assessment reveal about your sleep and work preferences? Does it coincide well with when you study and get language practice? If you are an early bird that is trying to study late at night, you might be doing yourself a disservice. Instead of trying to study late at night, it may be more productive for you to simply go to bed earlier and study first thing in the morning. If each day consists of a peak, a trough, and a recovery period, what sort of language practice could you try to schedule for each of these slots? It may not be ideal or possible for you to make dramatic changes, but it wouldn't hurt to experiment. If your ability to focus and do hard work is best during your peak hours, then are there changes you need to make in your language learning schedule? If the recovery period of the day is better suited for creative tasks, then what implications does it have for you? Maybe it's better to study your textbook and things like grammar before lunch. Something more creative, like meeting with a conversation partner, might be better for the afternoon. Scheduling rest is also important. Maybe the easiest advice could be summarized in three words, take a nap. As Walker states, even daytime naps as short as 20 minutes can offer a memory consolidation advantage, so long as they contain enough non-REM sleep. I hope you enjoyed this chapter of my book. If you found it helpful, send me a message, let me know. Also, I have a free PDF that introduces some of the assessment tools mentioned in my book. If you're interested, just go to rebrand.ly forward slash free PDF. Thanks for listening.